Simple Suttas, a podcast on original Buddhism. Visit us at simplesuttas.wordpress.com. Okay, all right. Sure. Um, so next up here, number four is, uh, is Sankhara. I'm going to give you those translations again. So, Sankhara. Uh, Mendes gives us mental formations, nyanamoli, determinations, tenisero, mental fabrications, and uh, volitional formations from bhikkhu bodhi. So mm-hmm. those, are uh, again, are all sort of strange things. You would really not have any idea what anyone's talking about if they tell you mental yeah. fabrications. <laughs> um, well, and this is one that I really struggled with, too, uh, for a long time. Um, and it, for me, when I think about it, I think about uh, the, the 12-fold chain again. Mm. And uh, because this, is, this becomes very, very important in the teaching of the Nidanas. Um, and so with me, uh, this is oftentimes defined, uh, we see it defined in a few different ways. Uh, one, which I'm going to save until we get to dependent origination, because I <laughs> okay. love that definition. It is absolutely incredible. Um, but the, the most uh, usual one that we see is, uh, and what's Sankara? Sankara is uh, actions with the body, actions with the mind, Actions with the speech, yeah. right? Um, just real simple, bare bones definition. Um, it's you know this idea of anything that is done uh, with intention. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know. I guess that's that's the way that I think about it. That's that's what I really uh, think about. I think about any intentional action whenever I see Sankara. Uh, I think that's getting right there. Oh, I just got a few others here. I, I realized yeah, I got yeah. the, uh, the Pali English Dictionary gives us essential condition, a thing conditioned, mental coefficients. <laughs> and it says, uh, one of the most difficult terms in Buddhist metaphysics <laughs> in which the blending of the subjective objective view of the world and of happening peculiar to the East is so complete that almost impossible for Occidental terminology to get at the root meaning of its translation. So there you go. We have no hope. <laughs> Well, I think you're right. So I think it's I think partly it's complicated because it's one of those words with a bunch of different meanings. And it if is, you yeah. try to think of it only as one thing, like if you try to think of Dhamma as only one thing, yes. you're just going to get confused. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of these translators um, understandably want to have one word definition for yeah. one term in Pali. But it just doesn't work that way. I think sure. Sankara is a great example of how it just doesn't work. And I think we're on the same uh, same page with what it means in this context, mm-hmm. which is uh, I've been translating it as either possibly will mm-hmm. or as choices. Yep, sure. And, uh, uh, and I think maybe the only thing I would say slightly different than what you did is that it's not the action itself, but just kind of that mental uh, uh, decision. Uh, and that maybe kama is the action itself. Sure. Uh, and that uh, when you're talking about sankara, it's more that uh, that uh, that mental aspect of it, deciding to do this, deciding sure. to the, do that. The initiating pulse, essentially. Right. Which is kind of funny because uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, you hook your computer up to a brain and you say, okay, decide when you're going to punch the button. Uh, keep a real close eye on the timer. We got a timer up there. Okay, decide. And then you hit the button and they say, okay, well, uh, actually, you decided two seconds before you thought you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is a, a, an amazing experiment, and I, I still haven't fully wrapped my, uh, my mind around it. But I think, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's actually not necessary to have any electrodes to really mm-hmm. see that you're not your decisions. Yeah. Now, I, I have to say, for me, this was by far the hardest one, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I, I could understand consciousness before I could understand uh, choices, because mm-hmm. what am I if not my choices? Mm-hmm. And on top of it, I mean, it, it seems like, um, you know, 
Were you one of, I, I think almost everybody that's thought very much about Anatta has this, uh, this experience where they say, wait a minute. If there's no self, how could there be rebirth? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, I've solved it. Exactly. Clearly the Buddha was an idiot. Sh- shake your fist at the heavens yeah. and uh, <laughs> nobody's ever thought of this before. <laughs> but this was the one for me because you think, well, on the one hand, I'm, I'm supposed to make good decisions. I'm supposed to live yes. a moral life. I'm supposed to meditate. I'm supposed to, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, that those decisions aren't me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and then the Buddha, even in this sutta, is specifically saying, wait a minute. You don't have control. Now, I can see, okay, I don't have control over my body, but surely I have control over lifting my arm if I choose to. Sure. And it's exactly sankara that is that decision to lift the arm. Mm-hmm. So how is it possible that I am not the one who decides to lift the arm? Well, uh, I think that there's going to be a couple different things <laughs> that he's going he's gonna to throw at you there. The biggest one that I can think of is that uh, most people are in no way control of their intentions. Um, and having been somebody that's, that's had all sorts of problems in my life, many, many problems, problems which, <laughs> which, I mean, as much as I exist, I caused, 100%, <laughs> caused all those problems. Um, and Yeah, and I think from now on we can stop with the scare quotes on <laughs> I. We know what we're talking about here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it was, once again, uh, those intentions, I guess. Uh, one thing, okay, so he's going to argue a couple different things. One, he's going to argue uh, intentions change, and they absolutely do change. And so if we were to be a specific intention, uh, you know, uh, then as soon as that intention goes away, we go away, right? Um, once again, if I am the one that intends, there's stuff bound up with that. And we're not going to really see, um, we're not really going to see what the problem is with that until our meditation is very, very deep, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And until we've seen kind of just essentially that intention disappear. And once again, if the intention, if intentions just kind of drop away, um, all of a sudden we're left there and we're like, oh, oh, wait a minute. There's still stuff here. Something's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Right? and, uh, and once again, I guess there's a whole other set of problems uh, that he doesn't talk about, and so this is commentarial. Um, but uh, people oftentimes feel um, horribly bound by decisions that they have made in the past, and they feel um, as if they are the person that made those decisions, and mm-hmm. they are those decisions themselves. And so if it was a bad person that had bad intentions in the past, how can I ever become a good person? I'm a bad person. I've already defined myself that way. And how, how is it possible that I could change um, how, you know, being David right now, how could I be other than David in the future? Hmm. Um, and that's not something, once again, that's commentarial. Um, but still, it's, but it's a very hopeful uh, look at impermanence. Yes. And normally we think of it as negative, and, and of course in many ways it is, but there is also, if, if I'm not my past choices, right. then there's hope. Yeah, <laughs> there's absolutely hope for me. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I guess those are the things. Um, and, and, you know, with just moving the arm, he talks about a, a couple different things. Uh, there actually is a specific sutta because people have said, oh, you know, uh, they take the doctrine. Oh, I'm, uh, there's no self. There's no self inside me. And there was a specific one. He says, okay, if somebody's going to take that position, ask them if they want to, you know, walk, walk back and forth in the room if that's what you want to do, right? <laughs> and see, can, can you do it? Can you not do it? Something's going on there, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, geez, man, I had something that I was getting around to there, and I totally, totally lost my track of thought. 
uh, you know, once again, the intentions are impermanent, and uh, if we if we take them to define ourselves, we're in trouble. Ah, that was it. I got it. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, he says that uh, you know fabrications. Uh, what do we do? Uh, what do we do to rid ourselves of fabrications? Well, we walk the eightfold path. The yeah, eightfold yeah. path itself is a fabrication. It is the yeah. fabrication that ends fabrications. Yeah. Um, and so we don't see, we don't stop, uh, we, we don't really truly disassociate with that. Uh, once again, uh, I, I would not be put in the intellectual position at this point of defending that the intentions are the self. But once again, it feels that way all it the time. It feels that way. Because I'm not, not all the way there, <laughs> you know, right? Right. And he says, and this is one of those things where, it, it doesn't go away until the very end. Um, yeah, I think both of those feel, in a way, the two things you said are, are both true, but contradictory kind of, right? So sure. on the one hand, it is absolutely true that we can get more in control of our choices, or yeah. at least feel more in control of our choices in a positive way mm -hmm. by doing things like um, meditating or studying or following the Eightfold Path, that we feel more more free in the sense of more able to do what we deeply want to do rather than being led around the nose by our immediate desires. Yeah. On the other hand, and so th th this is the one, this is the thing that finally got me to understand mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Sankara as being Anatta was teaching music composition of all things. Mm -hmm. So I, um, you know, w a friend of mine years ago once uh, was looking at a piece of music, uh, looking at the, the written music. And it was this big orchestral score by Luciano Berrio, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, a symphonia. Okay. And, uh, he said, my God, how many choices are on this page? <laughs> and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, my God, that's right. Writing music is making a bunch of choices. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, th uh, that that's true of everything, but yeah. I just had never thought of it that sure, way. I just absolutely. kind of thought of it, well, it comes from your soul or deep inside. Mm -hmm. yeah, like yeah. That. But, no, you're, you're deciding. Yeah. So then it occurred to me, okay, well, the way to teach composition then must be to teach how to make decisions. Yeah. So then I started very carefully trying to figure out, okay, how do I make decisions when I'm composing? Sure. Hoping that I could use that as an insight into, into how to teach composition. Mm -hmm. And the harder I looked, the less I could find. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, just to the point where I could almost not compose because I'm thinking, should I write this note? Should I write that note? How do you even make that choice, you know? Uh, uh, and, uh, and finally, I, I could only make some choices if it even if you could even call it that, by letting go of being the one that is making sure. the choices. Yep. And when you let go of being the one that makes the choices, then they come, mm -hmm. but it's utterly mysterious where they yeah. come from. Yeah. There, there's a, a book by, of all people, uh, Stephen King. I, yeah. For some reason I read years ago uh, called On Writing. It's okay. just his, yeah. his book yeah, about I've writing. I've read a little bit of that. Have you read? It's amazingly much, yeah. good, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've got to say. And he, he talks about if he has a, a problem in his writing, mm -hmm. then he sends that problem to the boys in the basement is mm -hmm. what he calls it. But basically it means he thinks hard about it and then he stops thinking about it and yep. then kind of allows his instincts to, uh, to take over. Absolutely. And at a certain level, all of our decisions are coming from this place that is obscure to us, that yeah. we really don't have uh, access to. Yeah. And when you recognize that, then you realize, oh my God, <laughs> I am not making these choices. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it kind of puts it, you know, again, sends it one level back. Yeah. Okay, well, if I'm not only not my body, I'm not only one that's wanting this or that, I'm not only the one that's understanding this or that, I'm not even the one that's choosing this or mm -hmm. that, then the choice is being made to lift my arm but I, capital sure. I, I guess they're all capital I, yeah. <laughs> am not uh, 
I am not my decisions. I'm yeah. not my choices. I'm not my will. I'm not my mental fabrications. I am right. not my mental concomitant, whatever yeah. all these things are. <laughs> uh, and that is just gobstopping because yeah. then what do you do? <laughs> Good <Okay>. question. <laughs> all right. Well, next step, huh? Okay, now we get to Vignana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is uh, the, the one that's considered sort of the most refined, the most difficult, and this is the one that's translated as uh, consciousness. Yep. And I think they all agree on, on the translation of this as, uh, as consciousness, yep. the one who knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is one that's very easy to step in in terms of accidental Atman. Yep. People that really, really think that they don't believe in a self, but just can't help thinking of their self as Consciousness with a yeah. capital C, the, That's the, right. the, the big mind, the substrate reality, sure. wh- whatever you want to yep. call it, they're they're all accidental mm-hmm. consciousness. Yeah, and it's really no more grand than than that. It's mm-hmm. a it's a mental process yep. that it, that is that coming together of the uh, the world of the uh, of forms with the world of the senses with the mental neurological function of understanding and interpreting those senses. Sure. Uh, we call it consciousness. We think of it as big and grand, and yet it's possible to, quote-unquote, experience uh, a state that is beyond all perception or non-perception. Mm-hmm. Is, is, that, uh, is that how we know that such a thing can exist? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's the, uh, the rub, right? <laughs> um, now, of course, uh, if, you know, there's going to be consequences if you want to push your meditation that far, which is, you know, you're going to be celibate and you're going <laughs> to, you know, like the, the, the world, the life that you live is going to completely come to a screeching halt. Um, not, and that's why one of the reasons I haven't even tried to push my, my meditation that far. I'm like, well, I got a family. I got to take care of them. You know? Um, you know, also, I guess one of the things, uh, there's a couple different definitions of consciousness that we see once again in the suttas. Um, we see consciousness as a type of life force, uh, when I believe it is Ananda, uh, in the Nidana Sutta, uh, is giving, now once again, we're getting 12-fold dependent origination there, um, it, he gives the nine, nine-fold chain, yeah, and yeah. that's the chain that ends, um, you know, uh, Namarupa is dependent on consciousness, consciousness on Namarupa. And he says, well, how can that be? He says, well, think about it. You know, if there's, uh, if name and form start in the womb and consciousness doesn't descend into the womb, is that name and form going to grow? No, it's not. What if uh, name and form is already in the womb, consciousness is in the womb, consciousness departs? Is that, is it going to continue to grow? No. Think about a young child. Uh, if, uh, you know, a young child is uh, 11 years old and uh, their consciousness departs, are they going to, are they going to be able to continue on? No. If, uh, uh, a young child is 11 years old and their body uh, ceases, they, you know, is, is the consciousness going to remain there? Well, no, it's not. Um, and so consciousness is defined sometimes as some type of life force. Uh, another type of consciousness that we see defined is uh, simply just this idea that there are six types of consciousness. There's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. And once again, that um, it's funny from a Western perspective, a lot of times that doesn't uh, really do a whole lot for people because they're like, well, yeah, it's duh, it's mind consciousness. That's that's me. Uh, end of discussion, right? It's almost redundant. Right. Yeah. You have mind without yeah, mind consciousness. Uh, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and so we see uh, once again that consciousness, he again and again and again says, Consciousness is dependently originated. How is it dependently originated? When an external base, a form, comes in contact with an internal base, the I, and then there is the attendant consciousness created, and the, uh, then those three together come together in contact. Um, you know, if you have any one of those things missing, uh, the internal base is not working properly, then I consciousness is not going to come about. 
the external, if there's no external uh, basis for uh, the eye to fall on, then you're not going to have eye consciousness, right? And if eye consciousness is not functioning, then you're not going to have vision, right? And you, you can't have contact that way. Um, and so, you know, we can actually think, I mean, specifically about specific areas of the brain where these things are functioning. We know kind of where they are now and stuff like that. And by the way, that is completely uncontroversial for a Buddhist. No. Right? It makes perfect sense yeah. that, uh, that these things would rely on a body. Right. Yeah. No, it's not a big deal. Um, and I guess the other definition of consciousness, which I think is kind of interesting, um, is that uh, at some point the, uh, the Buddha says that he um, dwells in consciousness uh, devoid of any type of feature, right? We get a sutta where um, he says, you know, consciousness without feature, and they're like, what is this consciousness without feature? And he says, well, okay, imagine that a sunbeam uh, comes through a window and you've got a house. Uh, where does it fall? Well, okay, it falls on the western wall. Well, what if there's no western wall there? Uh, well, okay, it falls uh, on the ground. What if there's no ground there? Okay, what if it falls on the water? Well, uh, or then, then it falls on the water. Well, what because if there's no water? That, uh, yeah. the earth was floating on the water right. at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, okay, well, then what, uh, what if there's no water there? Well, then it just simply doesn't land, right? And he does talk about this. Um, now, I, he in nowhere conflates this with being the true self, and he right. doesn't make that statement. Right. Um, and I think, and that he didn't even encourage that kind of meditation for people that weren't enlightened. Right. right. Yeah. It was just something that he did. Yeah, it was just something that he did. And Sariputta also says that right. he, right. he dwells in this place. Um, and um, you know, yeah. So he doesn't, but he in nowhere encourages that as being a true self or anything like that. Uh, and once again, you know, uh, people that have done much, much, much meditation and have have gotten into these kind of states. Um, where you know all their kind of mental processes stop. Uh, I say, oh, there it is. That's that's the me. That's the I. Um, and and I, I I'm afraid it's to their detriment. I think is in the eyes of the, of, of the suttas. But well, I think uh, this is where it gets a little bit difficult because if, from my perspective, each of these different stages, each of these different khandas, you can kind of look at the next one mm-hmm. and realize that the previous one wasn't the true self that you thought it was. Sure, yeah. So when I'm saying that Sankara, when I'm saying that my choices are not my true self, it's because I'm carefully looking at that choice-making process and realizing that there's no me there making that choice. Yeah. Well, what what is supposed to look at consciousness to identify it as being not self? Yeah. The only answer can be consciousness. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. And, uh, and that doesn't doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> I mean, there's so what? It's just consciousness looking at consciousness. I am us- I am conscious. Right. I no, I am not. Consciousness right. is looking at consciousness <laughs> to it. recognize that there is no there. Yep. There. No there is there. no I there. Yep. there yeah. Well, it's a it's a subtle point. Do you yeah. do you think it's a? So you said you think that this is this would be an impossible realization without uh, completely devoting your life to spiritual practice. Um, I don't think it's. I think it is an intellectual um, uh, realization. It's, it's definitely not impossible. I think that you could do it. Um, I think that it would require some meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, once again, I, I feel like there is these two steps where uh, intellectually you start to dos- disassociate with something and you say, well, I, I, I very clearly five years ago took this to be myself, and I yeah, very much yeah. thought that. Um, and then there's another step where um, when you go throughout your day, it no longer feels like consciousness is the true self. And uh, it's certainly something that I have not experienced, if that makes any sense. Um, it, my gut level, it feels very much like David is consciousness. <laughs> now, I know I have studied. I've done lots of meditation. You know, I've gotten to the point in my meditation where, you know, I can, I can completely cease mental chatter, stuff like that. 
Um, but the, the feeling of being me right now still feels like consciousness is me. Now, I, once again, I don't in any intellectual way agree with that. When I look deeply into it, I don't see it as being there. But that is the the, the reality of my everyday experience. I, I think that's uh, that's absolutely right. And so, we're, you know, when you when when you kind of intellectually understand it, that's that's actually a beautiful, wonderful a beautiful thing. thing. It should, this is why yeah. we're bothering to do this podcast. But um, it's still at the level of right view. Yeah. 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 I, I think uh, from the you know from the perspective of a musician, you can say have a flexible bow arm. Right? Yes, and you exactly. know I need to have a flexible bow yes. arm. Quite a different thing to actually be able to Absolutely. <laughs> completely different. Right, right. Yeah. That's why uh, this is not just uh, understanding. It's also about practice. Yeah. You were just about to hit on something that I had, I had put down as uh, something that might be interesting for at least to, uh, for us to at least mention, which is that uh, uh, connection between anatta and, uh, and emptiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I didn't know if this is a discussion for now or, or, or later, but it, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the meditation that you were talking about uh, that the Buddha would do is sometimes translated as the meditation on emptiness. Is that shunyata? Uh, that? Yes, uh, and it's uh, sunyata in Pali and shunyata in, okay, yeah. in, in Sanskrit and, uh, and kind of this incredibly important term in Mahayana Buddhism that is there in, in Theravada Buddhism but is not, you know, kind of given this great uh, pride of place. Yeah. But it seems to me that Anatta and Shunyata are mostly talking about the same idea. I agree, and and this is where the schools differ greatly. Mm. Um, and um, you know, I, I really studied uh, Northern Buddhism uh, for a while. Now, I won't say that I, I studied it seriously. I studied it uh, genuinely. We'll put yeah, it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I only read a couple books on it, but I really practiced hard on those books. Um, and I think that you know, once again, he says he dwells dwells in emptiness. Um, and they ask him specifically, what does that mean? And he says, well, uh, dwelling in emptiness, uh, I, in the entire world, I can cognize, I can see nothing that is in any way a self or, or related to a self or connected with a self. Um, and once again, in this context, I think that's very important. Um, in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, as I understand it, and I'm free to say that I'm totally wrong and I've misunderstood it, um, the uh, teaching seems to be that um, external things are empty of qualities, um, and that becomes a very different statement. Um, oftentimes, um, when I studied that, I became very confused because I, I was studying, like I said, very genuinely. I don't know that I was studying correctly. I would almost <laughs> certainly say that I wasn't. Well, and I'm sure there's a wide disagreement even with serious practitioners. Sure. Um, and um, so I began to feel um, as if um, skillful and unskillful were not a thing, right? Um, I would look, at, you know, using meditations when I was doing my best to meditate on emptiness. And I, once again, I say do my best because, some, you know, the first thing that you ever hear is, oh, no, you weren't doing it correctly. That, that wasn't right. <laughs> so I was, I was doing my, my darndest to, to do it to um, the, the technique that I was using at the time. Uh, I'd read in a book, and he said, okay, imagine, um, you know, uh, the empty sky, right? Um, and you see something in the sky, and you, you know, think about all the distance, like, between you and the moon, and how there's just basically nothing there. Now, we know that there is, you know, atmosphere or whatever, but basically there's just empty, clear space, right? And so you try to see the world as being essentially empty, clear space, wow. right? Um, and as to the level that I could practice that at, it was absolutely life-changing. It completely changed the way um, that I perceived the world. 
However, um, it saddled me, uh, once again, it could have been practicing totally wrong, saddled me with many different wrong views. Um, now when I see somebody doing something unskillful, um, what I believe to be unskillful, it doesn't upset me, but I still make a mental note that it's unskillful. Yeah. Um, at that time, um, I saw it as being completely devoid of properties. Everything that um, anybody, any action that anybody would take, that there would even be people to be doing actions, anything like that. Um, I was, was kind of thought of that as completely not existing, none of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so now once again, made me a very uh, peaceful person and, and really helped me. Um, man, made, made it hard to relate to anybody else, <laughs> I tell you that. Um, and so that's, that's something where um, the Northern and the Southern traditions, uh, I think, diverge greatly, is once again, I believe that here he's talking about emptiness of a self, anything connected with a self. But as far as you know, things having properties, he's not making that statement. I, I think that's uh, that's right. And uh, again, not to uh, criticize any any particular uh, practice of uh, a Mahayana, but I think any teaching that it, it's very easy to go a little bit too far yes. with emptiness. Yes. So I, I think what Nagarjuna was getting at was um, that he was what he was disagreeing with was not early Buddhism, but what he was disagreeing with was the the the, uh, the Abhidhamma and these and these later Buddhist uh, traditions of. Uh, of uh, dhammas as being real and true, yes, yes. and he was trying to point out that no, 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 no. The, the, you know, yeah. he, he was actually getting at something closer to what the early uh, teachings were, mm -hmm. uh, were were coming to, but just with a slightly different vocabulary. I, uh, when we were preparing for this, I just stumbled on a, a little bit later in the Samyutta Nikaya, <clears throat> just looking at emptiness. There's this wonderful uh, sutta. This is uh, Samyutta. Nikaya 35-85, and, and I won't do the whole thing. It's a very sure. short sutta, and, and the basic uh, uh, teaching is the Buddha talking to Ananda. He says, uh, it is Ananda because it is empty of self, of what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and belongs to the self? The I, Ananda, is empty of mm -hmm. self and what belongs yes. to the self. And then he goes through, he does forms, he does yes. uh, eye contact, he does all of these different things. Yeah. And it's it's almost exactly the same terminology. It could have it could have said the same thing, Anatta, just yeah. instead yeah. of use the word empty. So I, I think it's uh, probably more overlap there, at least in the early suttas, than, uh, yeah. than there is disagreement. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, enough on that, I suppose. Looking uh, back to the uh, the... The sutta. So we went through this whole series uh, of saying, well, obviously these five things, these five khandas, uh, rupa to, uh, to consciousness, are not the self uh, because we don't have them fully under our control. Uh, then he goes through the five again in terms of permanence. So he does this question and answer thing. So That's I'll, right. I'll, I'll, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is. I'll, I'll, I'll read a bit of it here. He says, uh, what do you think because is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Lord. Impermanent. Venerable sir, yeah. <laughs> uh, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering. Suffering. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded uh, thus? This is mine. There this it I is. Am. This is There's, myself. To me, that's the linchpin. That's right the route, there. Huh? Yep, because um, here he's not once again making a statement that there is no self, that there is even that there. Uh, uh, is a, like that a self is lacking in any of those things in a lot of ways he's not making that statement yeah. he's making this statement if you take any of these things to be yourself you will suffer for it mm. right um, and even in some places you know he goes so far to say as you know uh, you will suffer death or death like pain <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, uh, I think um, that's right but I think maybe what he's saying here is slightly different uh, I think, uh, so he's saying uh, that 
he's just asking, is, it, is, is what is impermanent suffering true? Absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But that's, that in and of itself is not necessarily what I would say. Well, let me put it this way. No, go ahead. If you just ask the man on the street, mm -hmm. uh, can a self suffer? Now, mm -hmm. if they could get past the strange wording of that <laughs> right. thing, yeah, yeah. then the answer would be yes. You, you would think, I think any, at least any Westerner would think, well, why shouldn't myself change and be impermanent? Sure. Why shouldn't yeah. myself suffer? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think actually th this argument, as it's stated right here, is maybe not super convincing to a Westerner. Because no, to a, well, I mean, uh, to be honest, I think that almost nothing in the polycanon is conv convincing to most <laughs> Westerners. Um, it's completely, you know, there's a big buy-in on um, having to understand the terminology, understand the way that the arguments work out. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I mean, literally, you have to believe in things that Westerners don't want to believe in at all. Um, you know, uh, you when you come to the poly, uh, the poly canon and you start reading it, um, if before you wanted to believe in some sort of um, <coughs> rebirth as uh, being metaphorical, right? Um, oh, David was a teenager and he took a birth as a teenager, and David played baseball and he took birth, you know, birth as a baseball player, and then David was a violinist and he took a birth as a violinist, and now David is a Buddhist and David takes a birth as a Buddhist. Um, it's just simply not supportive. It's just <laughs> not there. Yeah. Um, and um, so then all of a sudden you have to grapple with, do I want to believe that there is anything before or after this life? And um, most people, most, 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 just say, nope. Forget it. Forget it. It's, uh, I'm done. Uh, it's Scientology. <laughs> this, this chair is impermanent. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it just came off. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I, but continue on, on your path of thought there. Yeah, I, I agree that I think that this is a very, uncon uh, a very unconvincing argument. To oh, yeah. Of. Well, I, I think part of why it's, it seems very strange is that it's coming from the perspective of a culture that believed uh, the, the true self to be a certain thing. Sure. That, that, it, it, that in this time and place, that most people would have believed that the true self was a soul mm -hmm. that was, in some sense, permanent and uh, and beautiful mm -hmm. and uh, without suffering mm -hmm. and uh, this little chip of God, right? Mm -hmm. that you yeah, had yeah, this Brahma, literally. You had Brahma, you know, I I internally, and that it was defiled by uh, all of these things that the Buddha has just been talking about. Actually, sure. been been talking about the the, the it defiled by the body and so on. Mm -hmm. And and so then there were these rituals to purify. Yep. Uh, yourself, Going down so the that, river Ganges exactly, and, uh, so that lighting the fires, so that your true self could uh, could shine through. Yeah. And uh, so the you know a lot of the Buddhist teachings are kind of countering that particular way of thinking sure. that maybe is not our special yes. problem. <laughs> yes, no, I would agree. With that. But it also I think points out why that translation of anatta is no soul. Uh, there's a lot to it, right? Mm -hmm. That is maybe not super helpful for for someone who doesn't necessarily believe in a soul, or at least that kind of soul, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, was very potent for someone who that was their entire culture believed sure, that in absolutely. some way we had this, this chip of God uh, uh, inside us. So uh, I think uh, you know a uh, a Westerner might say, well, of course I believe that my soul is, or of course I believe that myself is impermanent. Of course I believe mm -hmm. that myself can suffer. Uh, sure. That's obvious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it doesn't change a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so while I think these arguments are are, are true, uh, such that they are, uh, maybe they're not as germane to a lot of us mm -hmm. as, as they would have been to these uh, these five original disciples. Is that fair? Yeah, I think <laughs> so. I mean, and I will add now, of course, uh, you know, uh, do I have a Western mindset anymore? Probably not. I mean, <laughs> it, depending on what you want to call that. For me, uh, it was interesting that you said, oh, OK, let's do, you know, and you, you sent me the link on the one that you wanted to do. And I didn't know it by name. 
but this is actually anytime that I'm in pain, anytime that I'm in ill, I'm ill. This is my meditation, and, and mm. I have it um, essentially not not memorized word for word, but the the principles. And so, like literally, I will go if I'm in physical pain, I'll sit there and I'll go through the form conduct, through the feeling conduct, through oh, the perception good. conduct, and that's literally. I mean, I will sit there and I will do that, and um, it. Um, it's, it's interesting because, once again, the way that I see it as being is that, okay, David, this is a choice. You're making a choice to identify with these things. If you back off from that and you don't identify with those things, these things can't, these, you're removed from that modicum of suffering, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, and that's where I think these two things, the, 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 the fact that all of these are impermanent and subject to suffering becomes really important. Yeah remembering that this mm-hmm. body will change, this body will die, this body will suffer, yeah. uh, gives you all the more reason to think, why would I even want to identify That's with right. that? Why would I even want to get all involved in that big mass, big mass of stress? Big mass of stress. There you go. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and whether you believe that you have a soul or not, then uh, under remembering how uh, how much suffering it can bring to identify with any of these things yeah. is, is really the, uh, the impetus for practice. Absolutely. Very good. Okay, seeing thus, bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion toward form, revulsion towards feeling, revulsion towards perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. Experiencing revulsion, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. He understands, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived, what has to be done has been done, and there is no more for this state of being. That's right. Revulsion for consciousness—that's uh, that's heavy stuff. There. It is. It is. It's um, it's very strong. And I mean, once again, in this context, uh, I think that we have to remember the people that he was talking to had developed concentration to the absolute utmost. Hmm. Right. Um, these people, you know, uh, the Buddha had studied with those two former teachers. Uh, one had taught him up to the domain of nothingness. The other one um, to the domain of neither perception nor non-perception. Um, and so and it wasn't enough. Yeah, it wasn't enough. And it, because once again, it's a fabricated state. Um, but it is a fabricated state which brings uh, an incredible amount of clarity to the mind. Um, and, you know, obviously I can't, I can't talk. There's a, a, a certain level to which I've gotten to as far as my meditation goes, and I haven't gotten beyond there. But I have seen enough to know that each one of these states is clearer than the last. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I can see where the road's going, even if I haven't, haven't gotten all the way down it. Um, and so when we're talking about, yeah, these guys hear it and they're, boom, they're liberated immediately. Um, that's the end for them. You know, well, these guys, I mean, their minds are, have been trained incredibly, like nobody, almost nobody in the world today, right? And so, yeah, sure, they hear it and, and boom, that's it. And to me, you know, I've thought about this uh, a fair amount. How does this happen? And, I, I came up with a goofy little simile. Once again, it's comment- commentary. But, um, you know, I think about the path as that, um, you know, the process of uh, sila, of, of working on our morality, is tilling the soil. Mm. And um, that the uh, seed is dhamma. And that the water is uh, mindfulness. And um, everything, you know, the first seven steps so far. And then uh, the sun is, is jhana and the jhana mm. practices. And that that if we have all of those elements coming together, um, the dhamma can really flower in our hearts and, and can become fully and truly realized. 
but uh, we look at Buddha and he had done everything except for he hadn't found the seed yet. And what's so incredible is, is that somehow he found the seed and he was the one that did it. And so then immediately he finds the seed, boom, he's enlightened, that's it. Well, these guys, it's the same deal. They've already tilled the soil. They've already worked really hard on their morality. They're ascetics. They're living, you know, absolutely um, more or less, you know, without any harm to anything, right? Um, they've pushed their meditation as far as it can possibly go, right? So, but what you have is you have a, a beautiful uh, tilled field uh, that's getting rain and sun, but no seed. Boom, he's planted the seed. It flowers immediately. Well, and it seems like for, for, for these guys, that, that last step, that, uh, that missing part of the seed, that missing part of right understanding was some kind of identification, whatever yes. it was. You yep. know? And uh, I, I kind of have the suspicion that maybe it was that last one, consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they saw, oh, just like all these other things, consciousness is not the true me, mm -hmm. and that was the, uh, the, the, last, the last straw, is that yep, the word? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, that's what the, what the Blessed One said, elated to those bhikkhus, delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. Mm -hmm. So, pretty good stuff. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah. I'm so excited to, to, to be able to do this with you. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah.